Welcome to the Science and the City podcast, your gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences. I'm your host, Nadia Popovich. This November, Science and the City held an event on the anthropology of online worlds. We invited anthropologist Thomas Malaby and game designer Lee T. Guzowski to answer two pretty complex and pretty interesting questions. How does our real-world humanity shape our virtual experiences, and how is it in turn shaped by them? Now, due to popular demand, we're bringing you that lecture through the Science and the City podcast. For your listening pleasure, we've broken it up into two sections. First up, Lee Guzowski, who is CEO and founder at G2G Enterprises. Guzowski explains how virtual gaming can, and often does, reflect back onto real life. What do people want online, he asks? The same thing they want in the real world. To make meaningful contributions to the community. Only online, the possibilities are unbridled. Next week, Malaby, who is professor of anthropology at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, tells us what makes any game successful, and how such rules are applied to the online world. He says that games aren't powerful because they are something separate from our daily lives, something to break us out of the norm. They are powerful precisely because they reflect many aspects of our basic humanity itself. But I'll let Guzowski take it from here. My name is Lee Guzowski. I am the founder and chief executive officer of G2G Enterprises, which is a virtual world startup based here in New York City. We are currently operating in stealth mode, so unfortunately I can't share too much of what we're working on because we just completed our demo and we're still pursuing the capital required to build our game world entire. I'd like to thank Dr. Groom and the Academy for having us here by creating this program and inviting Dr. Malaby and myself here to these historic halls. They've acknowledged what many of us have known for some time, that games are important and games are deserving of academic rigor. All right, how big is gaming? Well, the numbers are staggering. The majority of top Facebook, top iOS, so iPad, iPhone, iPod Touch apps are all games. The Xbox 360 Kinect was the fastest selling consumer electronic device in history. And there's this new game coming out, Modern Warfare 3. In France, a day or two ago, people attacked a truckload of the game to get to it. Like, ram the truck, tear gas, right out of a Jason Statham movie. Games have become the new diamonds. Now, the most important part about all of these facts is that the majority of people, not teens, not tweens, not young nerdlings who dress in Hogwarts robes the entire year round, although those people too, but the majority of people are gamers. The average age of social gamers is 43. At least 40% of the gaming audience is female. 69% of all heads of households play games. Even back in 2009, the scientific journal, Cyber Psychology, Behavior, and Social Networking, reported that 61% of the heads of companies CEOs, CFOs, other senior executives say they use games to take a break during the workday. Now looking to the future, 91% of American youth aged 2 to 17, 65 million children, are playing games. Name me something that is not biologically required that 91% of kids do. So what that means is that everyone, including real professional adults, play games. It is the dominant form of entertainment. It eclipses Hollywood, it eclipses music, and if looking at the number of kids playing is any indication, it is not going away. And we'll talk about the implications of that, but why has gaming grown to be such a dominant force? What are the implications of having real and virtual lives and having them interact? 
Well, let's, let's start at the beginning. What makes us human? Now, there's a delightful little book on this topic, which is uh, pictured here, <coughs> edited by Dr. Charles Pasternak. Stems from a symposium with the same title from March 2006 at the Oxford International Biomedical Center in conjunction with the Royal Institution. What makes us human? Is it imitation? Is it memory? Is it language? Is it our concept of time? Belief in causality? Is it curiosity and quest, per Dr. Pa uh, Dr. Pasternak himself? I met Dr. Pasternak, and he himself has a delightful, if somewhat larger, book called Quest, The Essence of Humanity. Charles and I had a great chat about exactly this. The concept of going on a quest gets to the absolute essence of humanity. And if you look at it from that perspective, it's almost too easy to have been able to predict the rise and the triumph of games. Only gaming allows the participant an active role that can deliver upon many or most of the fundamental pillars of humanity. Now, especially when you consider belief in causality, the desire to go on a quest, games are perfectly tuned and attuned with reward mechanisms to that which gives us our humanity. And we're starting to see this play out in the industry um, in, in a very dramatic shift in the way that games are conceived, in the way that they're created, consumed, and, and even considered. And by that I mean, with the advent of online gaming especially, you're seeing a transition from gaming from a product to a medium. So a quick word about types of games, just to, to, to set our terms. There are lots, and I've mentioned a few different types already. Uh, I'm of the opinion, and many disagree with me, particularly in the venture capital world, and <laughs> for obvious reasons, large populations of game designers and hardware manufacturers, but I'm of the opinion that the industry terms, casual gaming, social gaming, MMOG, MMORPGs, so massively multiplayer online games, massively multiplayer online role-playing games, virtual worlds, increasingly don't matter as much as what people want to do online. The technology and the tools are progressing to the point, well, what do you want to do? And how do people spend their time? So, so given the nature of tonight's discussion, I'll largely focus on virtual worlds and predictably probably the same ones uh, that, that Dr. Malaby focused on. But I fundamentally don't think the type of game, the game itself, or the device upon which the game is accessed matter too much anymore. Because games are their own medium. And just as storytelling forms have changed throughout time, from oral traditions to written to moving pictures, games are the next step in the human evolution of story. The difference, of course, being that games have a more experiential component. Books excite and engage one's imagination. TV and movies are passively viewed, but visually, visibly, audibly, and emotionally compelling. And look at the language used in reviewing film, right? It's, it's they draw us in, or um, the characters are so believable. You know, it felt real. Games actually draw people in. The neurological and biochemical responses are, in much lower dosages perhaps, identical to similar real-world events. What are the implications of this, of games transitioning to a medium? What do people want to do online? Well, if Zynga and Facebook are to be believed, they want to be farmers and have fish. Maybe. You know what the top-selling title of all time is? The Sims. Something as prosaic as that. What do people want to do online? The same things they want or aspire to do in the real world. Now, The Sims has sold well over at least 100 million copies last count I saw in over 60 countries. It's been translated in over 22 languages. Interestingly, around 60% of Sims players are female. The Sims franchise since 2000 has generated over $4 billion in revenue of Electronic Arts, and that's probably gone way up. Currently has 8.7 million likes on Facebook. Now, I quote on the top, the top point, Sims marketing material. Now, now, this I will quote. Real life getting you down? Is there a huge science project due? Don't have enough to pay the mortgage? Did you get stood up at the mall? 
Welcome to The Sims 3, where you can escape real life by downloading a game about real life. Only you control absolutely everything. Customize your character and live life to the fullest, or completely screw it up. The choice is yours. Wow. <laughs> right? You know, the ability to be an agent with control over your world but no responsibility. It's tremendously enticing. And we'll get back to that in a bit. Um, however, the totality of control and the, the, the lack of, of responsibility is the initial hook. But you spend enough time in these worlds and these simulations and, and fascinating things occur. Sometimes, despite all that, that agency and the lack of imposed limitation, people create responsibilities for themselves. And sometimes those spontaneous creations can have real world effects. For example, the creator of the Allison Kev blog took it upon himself to blog in great detail the daily doings and happenings of a family he created in The Sims that lived homeless in a park in their neighborhood. The story gained something of a cult following. Um, the author added tools to the blog where you could download the homeless characters to, to their neighborhoods. The comments are fascinating. Uh, you know, and, and some of the downloaders made a point to fix the lives of these homeless virtual characters using their own in-game currency, their own simoleons. You know, and a link on the page also allowed readers and, and users to make direct donations to homeless charities. Yeah. <laughs> Games are often thought of as escapist, right? It, it's a safe haven from a harsh world. But if the concepts involved are powerful enough, the reverse can become true, right? We can take the triumphs and the inspirations that we discover in game space out into the real world. And as game space and as the technology becomes more ubiquitous and robust, you can see the opportunity for this kind of phenomenon multiplied at an incredible rate. That idea is what I find most exciting about working in the industry. You know, our team puts in a lot of work, a lot of time and effort to create and set a world in motion. But then, you know, at, per Dr. Malaby's point, it belongs to the people within that world immediately. And you can never, ever predict what's going to happen. Tremendously exciting. And it's what people create within these worlds that just staggers. So look at a couple more, and you've heard about these already, but really quickly for Warcraft and Second Life, you know, there are many different worlds. There are literally hundreds. You know, many of them are still sword and sorcery, Dungeons and Dragons. But you think about where games started and, and how we got here. You also have some science fiction, superhero worlds, and the genres continue to expand. You know, there are more and varied coming online every day. There's a very cool world actually called Minecraft. I don't know if anyone's heard of that. Yeah, right on. It's, it's great. It sort of sits between The Sims and, and Second Life. With simpler design tools, but really impressive creative stuff coming out of it. But I'm going to concentrate on these two briefly because they're stunning achievements, first of all just stunning technical and creative achievements. And with more people interacting with them, you see more and varied demonstration of culture, which is the point of tonight's talk. So in Warcraft, you've got a beautiful, lush world with 11.4 million disparate people from all over the real world coming together to play it. Again, a technical and creative marvel. But it's also a marvel of human achievement. And by that, I mean teamwork and community. You know, Dr. Malby talked about going on a raid himself. Raids involve an amount of coordination rarely seen outside of the professional sphere. Between five and 40 people have to be organized in a group, each with roles, responsibilities, juggling people's personal schedules and time zones all over the world to accomplish a shared goal. These people have to be good at their specific skills. They have to do their job. The party leaders have to know how to coordinate, motivate them to use their skills properly at the right time. You know, raid content is designed as an activity for people who have reached the limits of personal development in the game context to reach maximum level. You know, it offers advancement in, in terms of gear and weaponry and as a reward for attacking a larger task that can only be accomplished through teamwork. And that is what I love about Warcraft the most. You can't truly experience it alone.
you also get the strength of de facto social grouping in raids, and by that I mean you know, you're the best of the best, teamed up with the best of the best around a common goal. People spend hours and hours upon raiding. Warcraft developers have created a system capable of harnessing immense amount of time and, and energy and, and focus from people in their leisure hours. You know, one of my favorite statistics, which I will quote from Jane McGonigal's uh, thought-provoking book, Reality is Broken, and I quote, if you add up all the hours that gamers across the globe have spent playing World of Warcraft since the MMORPG first launched in 2004, you get a grand total of 5.93 million years. To put that number in perspective, 5.93 million years ago is almost exactly the moment in history that our earliest human ancestors first stood upright. By that measure, we spent as much time playing World of Warcraft as we spent evolving as a species. <laughs> Fabulous. So the challenge becomes, how else can we find ways to play that level of drive and, and commitment? It has massive potential. Now, Second Life, you've got a lot of people. You know, Linda Labs is a little circumspect with their numbers, but it's a lot. And you can tell by the amount of creativity that's going on. You've already heard about Second Life, and I, and I find it fascinating because if you correct for leathery bat wings and gorgon heads, it's the most direct translation of online anthropology. You know, you've got concerts to attend, there are lectures, there are conferences, there are, there, there's a direct recreation of Harvard Law Building where you can go and take classes. There's an island devoted to environmentalism, you know, with real world companies demonstrating their earth-saving technologies. Clothing designers make real money with virtual designs and some have got job offers from real world design companies based on things that they've designed in Second Life. You know, the key to Second Life is, is creative freedom. It's an exploration of what happens if you give people the tools and freedom to explore and create anything they want. And it's really impressive, some of the things that have come out of there. You know, art installations, houses, clothing that I mentioned. And economies rise up out of these things and intersect with a real-world economy when people become adept enough at creating and sell it. And, you know, the community is international, and people can interact and share experiences from all over the world. And because they build things in this environment in a very meaningful way, they're capable of sharing more than just conversation, which might be hampered by language barriers, they're capable of creating experiences to share with other people, environments to participate and explore together. It's limited only by the imagination. Play, teach, laugh, learn, marvel at, at what's been created. And I went to a terrific lecture a couple years ago about doing serious things in and with Second Life. And the woman who was presenting really sparked a lot of thought when she was describing uh, the virtual Hajj to Mecca, which is what I've pictured here. So she said, look at me. I'm a diminutive Jewish woman. I'm not going to walk into a mosque and start asking questions. But I am interested in learning more about Islam. In Second Life, I can go to a virtual Hajj, wear the appropriate clothing, learn the rationale behind the traditional clothing, and learn about the tenets of Islam without fear of physical reprisal. Now that raises some fascinating possibilities, right? These are real, I mean, direct examples of the anthropology of online culture. But what are the implications and where are we headed? Well, the implications are pretty significant, and if done correctly, I think profound. By stripping away the physical, if done correctly, we can be heading toward the triumph of the mind. And I mean that. Dr. Grooms sent Dr. Malby and I a few sample questions to try to kick off some thought about what we should address and, and what we should try to talk about tonight. And my favorite one was, it feels like nerd culture, and specifically the intersection of boys and games, has invaded popular culture. How is gamer culture driving popular culture? You know, the answer is playing out all around us in obvious, literal ways, like movies based on video games, but also, you know, professional Formula One drivers use the F1 video game to prepare for races and learn courses. Same with football players at every level. Uh, high school, college, pro players use Madden football to practice plays. I mean, you can't ask for a better example of the triumph of nerds over jocks than that. 
But the real reason, to use Dr. Groom's term, nerd culture is invading and emerging triumphant is because, you know, what is the defining characteristic of a nerd? As a proud one myself, I like to think it's more than anything being smart. And more often than not, ostracized for being smart. Well, people in general don't deal with oppression or marginalization well. And if you're smart, what do you do? Apparently, you redefine success traits and you build words wherein you have a chance to become the hero. It is a basic human desire to be appreciated for what one knows, what one has created, or what one has accomplished. Games excel at that. Now, without a physical presence, someone who may not view society's normal idea of success, may not be rich, powerful, classically handsome, charismatic, I mean, somebody who could be the living personification of the gamer stereotype, right? The, the fanboy who lives in his mother's basement and has bad skin. This person is also, in a meaningful way, a level 80 warrior in Warcraft. And here's the fascinating bit about that. Dr. Edward Castronova, who, who I'm sure you know from, from Terra Nova, the blog, he wrote a pretty seminal book called Synthetic Worlds. And in it, it was the sociology more than anything else that amazed me. The overwhelming majority of these worlds are self-policing and benevolent. Players want to create. They want to create something wonderful, something beautiful, something supportive. And it's been proven. People overwhelmingly want the chance to be good and creative. They want also to be recognized for what they know, as I mentioned. So what are the highest level players in Warcraft spend most of their time doing? Not exacting revenge for how cruel the real world has been to them. Quite the opposite. They spend most of their time teaching others how to achieve. So I think, and it remains a theory, but all of the evil-isms, right? Racism, sexism, anti-Semitism, homophobia, are surface judgments. They, by definition, right, do not stand up to intellectual scrutiny. How can you immediately hate somebody for something they have no control over? As our favorite Vulcan might say, illogical. Games allow people to transcend surface, real-world biases and focus on connectivity, achievement, and understanding. Now, that all sounds lovely and utopian, doesn't it? It's true. The United States Air Force, just, I think, this week, announced an $11 million collaboration with researchers at Oklahoma University to, and I quote here, design a game aimed at training intelligence analysts to ignore their biases in making crucial decisions. The $10.7 million project, codenamed Macbeth, which stands for Mitigating Analyst Cognitive Bias by Eliminating Task Heuristics, <laughs> right? <laughs> Smooth. <laughs> it will result in a game called Intelligence Crisis, putting players in the shoes of an intelligence analyst by gathering evidences and interviewing witnesses. That's happening now. So with this, it informs another implication, uh, a rising appreciation for complexity. With the talent and technology that's flooded into our industry, you're starting to see subtlety. You know? You're starting to see morality, ambiguity, complexity. I cannot applaud this loudly enough because people are complex, and you're starting to see people online. A couple of weeks ago, I don't know if you saw this, uh, Chris Poole of 4chan gave a talk at the Web 2.0 Summit in San Francisco about the portrayal of identity online. And in his talk, he derided Facebook and Google Plus for presenting people as flat and unidimensional and, and as a reflection of self. Here are my friends, here are my likes, here are my dislikes. Now, the problem with that is that, and we all know this, and, and he said it from a technological standpoint as well, is that identity is prismatic. You know, one of Poole's lines was, and I quote, I have more options in the toothbrush aisle at a supermarket than when it comes to how I choose to express myself online. Could not agree more. Now, this is something that gamers know, something that we personally at, at our company have been thinking about and working on for a long time. People are complex and multifaceted. You know, I did used to be an investment banker. Uh, does that mean I'm a capitalist scumbag deserving of scorn? <laughs> I was also 
an actor, a playwright, an improvisational comic. I'm a son, brother, husband, father, friend, chief executive, poor but impassioned karaoke singer, um, a double major in philosophy and economics with a, with a minor in creative writing. So what am I, other than often confused? Everyone is so quick to pigeonhole because compartmentalization makes shorthand comprehension easy, right? You are whatever label I find easy to hand. It does a disservice to all parties involved. Everyone goes much deeper than that. And this is something gamers have understood for a long time. Try on a different persona. Much has been written about players crossing genders, and much of what has been written has focused on the salacious and the creepy. But conceptually, what better way to view the world from a completely different vantage point than to play it in a virtual world? See how, or if, people react to you differently if you are the opposite sex, or perceived as the opposite sex, or perceived as a different race. And there are fascinating academic studies being done about the, the morality of this and the ethics of it. But explore some of the prismatic aspects of your identity. And it's OK because you're exploring in a world of the mind. Globally, you know, we're hurtling past 7 billion people. Space, cost, resources limit what most people can do. So these surrogate worlds could take on increasing importance to allow freedom of the imagination and, and exploration at reasonable or no cost. You know, my job and what I've decided to make my life's work is to give you an environment and give you creative tools. Your job is to make that world yours and ours and a maze and be dazzling. Now, given how massive a force gaming is, I personally think game designers have a moral obligation to build better games and aim toward the more noble aspects of our being. So the real question becomes, how far can these games take us? Well, they've already taken us to life, death, and love. You know, what else is there? You've had players who met in these virtual worlds and then got married in the real world. Their personalities met online. On the dark side, you've had at least one that I can think of, maybe two murders over virtual items. Those are the headline-grabbing stories. But it's the subtleties, the, the beauty, the creativity, and the wonder that truly matter. So how can and do these game worlds shape our real worlds, our humanity? How do the virtual worlds and the real world interact? Profoundly. And each impacts the other. And perhaps we can take the lessons from modeling these worlds into our own world and, in a very real sense, craft a better one. So I have a theory. In the few months that have passed since I've been invited to speak here tonight, the following things have happened. Our two-month-old son has endured an earthquake, a hurricane, and a freak October blizzard. <laughs> He's also been diagnosed with a vision disorder that may resolve itself. One of my best friends, I was in his wedding party, is a wonderful man, a husband, a father and a friend, a published author, English teacher, former academic all-American athlete, had to have emergency open-heart surgery. Then, immediately upon healing from it, recently started chemotherapy and is now undergoing a fight against lymphoma. My mother-in-law, who I adore, and I understand not everybody has that relationship with their mother-in-law, but I adore mine, cannot be here tonight because she is currently, right now, in recovery from surgery this afternoon for a mastectomy for recurrence of breast cancer. Now, I mention these things not to pander for sympathy, and in fact, I would prefer not to discuss any of this at the reception <laughs> tonight, but rather to illustrate a very simple fact that, in many ways, life happens to us. You know, you recall at the outset, I mentioned The Sims. Well, of course, being to try on different lives and act as a controlling agent and then be able to walk away whole and healthy, of course that appeals, particularly if you're disenfranchised in the real world. But even if you're not, and, and I consider myself a very fortunate man by every measure, these game worlds, as an entirely new medium, not simply entertainment, just as storytellers, writers, filmmakers since time immemorial have conveyed conflict and victory and horror, so too do these worlds allow individuals to feel, in a real sense, what that's like. Again, neurologically, biochemically, and physiologically the same. When playing these games, the pulse quickens, the, the tension mounts, and at a smaller dosage, 
you're feeling the heightened sensory awareness of combat or the, the camaraderie of building a community to creatively solve a problem. To borrow McGonagall's usage, the Italian notion of fiero, you know, the, the pride that comes with triumph, with being fully actualized. So I think if done properly, you know, just like the grueling practice before an athletic match, so you can rely on muscle memory and instinct when you're in a game situation. So too, could these give us virtual muscle memory? The remembered experience of coming together to solve problems of fiero, of triumph. And this can be used virtually as a sword, a helmet, breastplate, the armor and weaponry required to face the real world with joy, with Whitman's barbaric yawp. Because the real world can be scary. It can be violent, there are monsters, there is horror, there are words like metastasized. But just as the ancient Greeks and Romans, themselves very game-centric societies. I mean, look at the Olympics, right? Just as the Greeks and Romans telling stories of gods, goddesses, monsters, heroes, tales of brave Ulysses. You know, the Odyssey, at its heart, was a story about a guy who wanted to go home. So too, if done properly, can these game-based activities build in us the remembered shared experiences of noble victory. And we can use that muscle memory to triumph over real-world adversity and learn how to build better worlds for ourselves. Now again, that's a theory. Perhaps. But I like our chances. There are many currently existing positive direct real-world applications. The military and corporations are using simulations for training. All of your top laparoscopic surgeons, all of your top gunfighter pilots. Hospitals are using Second Life simulations to correctly diagnose a patient, to practice patient handoff and transition, which is the number one cause of staph infection, accidental injury, and death. But it's not just top-end big ideas that get attention. As this uh, Wall Street Journal article a couple of years ago even says, by virtually recreating hospitals and running drills, and I quote, the most useful information yielded by virtual drills is often mundane. If nurse avatars get lost trying to evacuate patients, it's clear the hospital needs better directional signs. If one hallway always gets clogged with virtual gurneys, perhaps administrators should rewrite the evacuation protocol to ease the bottleneck. There are even simulations to try and teach empathy to healthcare professionals. Again, from this article, I quote, one simulation gives students a glimpse into the world of a schizophrenic, besieging their avatar with disembodied voices, whispering things like, you're a worthless human being. The goal is to give a sense of how hard it is to think clearly or to communicate what you need to get across in that situation. There are the Serious Games Initiative, Games for Change, pictured here. Games that make you experience and therefore think more seriously about myriad global topics that we might read about, might consider, but not really internalize. Well, games allow you to internalize that. Sweatshop is pictured here. A game about offshore manufacturing that presents a series of moral challenges to the player. And I quote from their materials. Sweatshop offers an accurate picture of the lives of those who work in the system, from the lowly child workers who stitch together the clothes all the way up to the Western client who places the orders. Responding to the trends set by an image-obsessed celebrity culture, the game is littered with real facts about the fast fashion industry and aims to provoke teenagers into thinking about their fashion choices more carefully. The potential is quite literally infinite. Now what I really wonder about is, why is this a surprise to any of us? Why should it be surprising that people spend so much time in worlds of their own creation? And it's not a revolutionary phenomenon not even a recent phenomenon. It's not Second Life's idea, it's certainly not my idea, certainly not our company's idea. In fact, the idea is millennia old. Your work, virtual or real, is to discover your world and then with all of your heart give yourself to it. Buddha said that. And that is what I sincerely wish for all of you.
Science in the City is a not-for-profit program of the New York Academy of Sciences. Visit us online at www.scienceandthecity.org or email us at scienceandthecity.nyas.org. Thanks for listening and stay tuned till next time.